how many of you have ever driven a riding lawnmower? I'm speaking to city slickers here, so I'm guessing it's going to be relatively few. Put your hand up. Is anyone, okay, a handful? That's what I, I expected that. Well, for about a decade of my childhood, that is likely where you would have found me on a Saturday afternoon, from May to October, bouncing over my parents' country lawn, uh, headphones, ear protectors on, sunglasses on, so I didn't get a piece of a wood chip in my eye, and pondering life, and just in general, hating that the lawnmower continually wanted to turn left. All it wanted to do was go left. I was fighting it the entire time. It was a 1980s model Kubota. It was not in good shape. It was solid engine, but all it wanted to do was this. It had an alignment problem. Constantly, constantly it wanted to go left. Passages like the psalm that we are considering here today are a lot like that lawn tractor in terms of how they view us as Christians. God does not call us to life inside an auto-steering Tesla. Let go and let God is not a true moniker. The Christian life is a constant battle for realignment, to realign our perspectives, our desires, our priorities, our worship. That is the Christian life. Our default is to veer away and often quite quickly. The psalm we're considering here today, Psalm 73, it shows us one aspect of how God keeps his children on a narrow path. Now, before we read this psalm right through together, just a brief word on the broader context of the psalms. Jumping into the psalms comes with the same risks as jumping into a New Testament epistle right in the middle. This is because it is a constructed book with a cohesive story from Psalm 1 right through to Psalm 150. Its final editors and, of course, the Holy Spirit, they had a purpose in placing each psalm where they did. The book in its final form, it likely came to being sometime around the 3rd or 4th century before Christ. It really might be helpful for you to think about the psalms like this. Have you ever been to Europe and been to one of those fancy medieval cathedrals that you know, may have been completed in the 1600s, but you, look, you read the inscription and it says, Construction began around the 1100s, over 500 years working on the same building. Same idea here with the Psalms. Many architects over many years, harmonious variety of styles comes together to form a single whole in the end. It's not like a condo tower in Toronto that goes from hole to sky rise in about a day and a half. That's the book of the Psalms. Psalm 73 in particular, you may have noticed if you have your Bibles open, it says book three right above Psalm 73. It's the beginning of book three of the Psalter. There are five of these distinct collections within the book of the Psalms. A book three is known by many commentators as the book of crisis. It follows the first two books that are filled with messianic themes and mostly prayers of David. You'll see there in Psalm 7220, the verse right before our Psalm here today, there's a key marker. It's an addition by an editor the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. There's a scene shift that happens from Psalm 72 to Psalm 73, and there's likely a chronological shift uh, here as well. Rather than the reign of David, the reign of the kings of Israel being the backdrop for a lot of the Psalms in the first half, those first two books, it's the exile and approaching the exile that is the backdrop of book three of the Psalter. The first 11 psalms of this book, they're attributed to Asaph. That's David's chief musician. Now, as some of these psalms clearly deal with events that were not contemporary to David, uh, it's likely this title also refers to descendants 
of Asaph. We see in Ezra 3, for example, uh, that the sons of Asaph directed music even in the post-exilic times of Israel. So Psalm 73, as the opener to book 3, it stands as a critical transition in the flow of the Psalms as a whole. In many ways, it acts like a second Psalm 1, and that's why we read it here this morning. The two poems, they are similar. There is a dichotomy that's presented between the wicked and the righteous and the wicked. They are condemned. But in Psalm 73, this only comes after a struggle. This may be because of the different settings. It's easy to dismiss the wicked when the righteous are the ones in power with the upper hand, such as during the days of David. It requires faith to do that. Enormous faith when the wicked are in power, like in the days following the exile. So with that context to guide us, turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 73, and let's read this right through together and let God speak to us. Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven. Their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain, I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long, I have been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. Till I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet, I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. Now, as I read through that psalm, I'm guessing that a number of you may have had questions, tough ones perhaps, arise in your mind, maybe an objection or two. That's not to be unexpected with this psalm. It's dealing with some of life's deepest questions. Asaph is wrestling with concepts that we all wrestle with. And chief amongst them, of course, is 
Why do the worst people often enjoy the best lives? If God allows the wicked to prosper, or as he clearly does, is this not evidence of his not being good? Or even of his very non-existence? If you have come here this morning with that kind of question, maybe it just popped up now as I was reading that text, if you're a believer struggling with doubt, or maybe you're an avowed skeptic of the Christian worldview, then friend, this text is for you. Look at the big picture on page 7 of your bulletins. Let's start there. It's the overview of this whole psalm. When the wicked prosper, it troubles the righteous. Drawing near to God in the ways he prescribes is the only way to avoid plunging into envy and bitterness because it realigns our sin-tainted perspective on life and reveals a worldview that is infinitely glorious. This is what Asaph ultimately discovers in his philosophical battle with himself. But each stage of his struggle, it's instructive for us. We need to understand how Asaph gets there. That's the crux of this psalm. So turn to your outline for a moment. I'll give us a, a bird's eye view of where we're going here today. Uh, the structure of this psalm, it's really quite symmetrical. It's balanced, really, half and half between Asaph's struggle with the wicked and then his turning to God. Starts in verse 1 with, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And the closing verse, it really essentially says that again. It returns to verse 1, only much more emphatically, developed a bit with some added action. Uh, the intervening verses, they move Asaph from that wavering hope of verse 1 to the grounded hope of verse 28. That's what we're looking at here today. Uh, first, Asaph, he admits there is this nagging problem with what he said in verse 1. There's a challenge to its validity. And this it's this, the apparent prosperity of the wicked. That's the problem that he sees. Uh, second, this challenge is considered as Asaph approaches God and his original hope is upheld. And third, lifted now of his burden, Asaph rejoices and he expands upon his original hope. So that's our roadmap to guide us here today. Let's work through each stage together. It will be instructive for us. First, Asaph, he announces his premise in verse 1. He says, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. This could have been a creed-like statement uh, in the author's day. It's certainly a true statement. Uh, Jesus reaffirms it as much in his Sermon on the Mount, of course. In, uh, in Matthew 6, he says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Now, it's worth pausing for a moment right there. This phrase, pure in heart, is important for us to understand in this psalm. Heart, in particular, uh, heart comes up again and again. It's a repeated metaphor in the psalm and throughout the Bible. And it's, of course, still around us today. It really means the similar thing. It refers to the center of our sentient beings, our minds, our wills, our emotions. They flow from our hearts. Those who are pure in heart, then, are those whose minds, wills, emotions are fixated ultimately upon the only one who is pure, God himself. So while this is a true confession that Asaph makes here, he quickly admits that he's struggling to hold to it. Verse 2, But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. Asaph, he's clearly battling with doubt here. He feels like he's coming unmoored from this grounding he has in the truth of God being good to those who are pure in heart. He's quite frank, really, though, with the source of this doubt. He gets right to it. It's verse 3. For I envied the arrogant 
when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Asaph confesses, essentially, to the sin of envy and attributes his doubt to it. And here's a warning for us, New City. Do not underestimate the tentacles of envy. James 3.16 says this, If you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. Envy cripples faith. It blinds us to God's goodness. And brothers and sisters, it is an easy one to hide, isn't it? It's an easy sin for us to hide. How often are we tempted to entertain discontented thoughts about other believers even, other friends of ours, their life stage, their appearance, their career, even their spiritual maturity? None of that is safe. It is not a safe sin to envy. There's no safe sin, but it's especially not safe to envy one another. Envy leads Asaph into his spiritual crisis. As envy clouds his view, Asaph looks around And he despairs. He makes a series of observations about the activities of the wicked, some of which we'll come back to a little bit later today. But I want you to notice one central claim that Asaph makes throughout this self-pitying lament in these nine verses. It's this. The wicked seem to be carefree. That is his main problem. Verse 4, they have no struggles. Verse 5, they are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Verse 7, their imaginations have no limits. And a summary in verse 12, this is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. I think probably all of us can identify with how Asaph is feeling here at least. In dozens of countries, of course, around the world, the ruling class is corrupt and virtually untouchable. A lot like Asaph's day. This may not be as acute in our current Western democracy, but in an age when individual expression is the ultimate good, Asaph's observations, they certainly feel quite relevant about those who are not, who are dismissive of God. Our friends, they wonder with us, why do we subject ourselves to institutions like the church? Submission is seen as a dirty word. Pride is the necklace of the godless today as it was in the day of this psalm list. Our society mockingly asks us all the time, just exactly what Asaph observes the wicked asking in verse 11. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? And if we're honest, we sometimes struggle to answer that kind of question. Asaph does too. Look at verse 13. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted. Every morning brings new punishment. That sounds not unlike, sadly, the preamble to many a heartbreaking Instagram post from some prominent North American Christians over the past couple of years. Lamenting obedience as oppression. Makes me wonder if perhaps a hidden root of the exvangelical trend might be years of harbored envy. Years of unmortified discontent. In any case, Asaph's envious, self-pitying survey of society has brought him to rock bottom. He now regards his efforts to remain pure in heart as punishments. 
He now regrets not participating in the ways of the wicked. He is sick of being the lone dissenter. I have felt like that. I imagine most of you have felt like that. We felt like we are the only ones saying no all of the time. And this challenges Asaph's belief. He has thrown the challenge flag. The play is now under review. And according to the angles that Asaph can see, the call is going to be overturned. But Asaph hasn't been looking at the best angles. He's going to see that in a moment. There's a shift in verse 15 at the structural center of this psalm. It brings us to our second point, the hope upheld. Notice there are three steps that Asaph takes in this section of the psalm. First, he pauses his wallowing for some sober self-reflection. It's almost as if he's suddenly taken aback by what he has just said in verse 14. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. Asaph, he mulls the public consequences of what he has just expressed in private. And he realizes something important. He recalls his loyalties. He remembers that he is not alone in confessing, verse 1. But he's part of a community. Others who God calls his children share in this hope with him. Perhaps even as a recognized leader in this community, Asaph now feels a bit of a burden to be 100% sure before he denies such a critical truth. And so he doesn't voice publicly yet what he's been moaning on about in private. Instead, he admits, when I tried to understand all of this, it troubled me deeply. Now, we don't know how much time elapses between verse 16 and verse 17. In a sense, it is one sentence. Uh, but I think there is a useful lesson contained in both the verses we just looked at, verse 15 and verse 16. And that is to not quickly act on our emotions to carefully evaluate all of our doubts before adopting them as our beliefs. Brother, sister, if you are struggling today, and I imagine that there are some here who are, if you are waffling on the line of, of leaving the faith or even just of doubting an aspect of the faith, hear the wisdom of Asaph here, of this psalm here. Pause. Consider your doubts from new angles. And then heed the wisdom of verse 17. When I tried to understand all of this, it troubled me deeply. Till I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. This is the high point of the psalm. The decisive shift in Asaph's struggle. It comes right here in verse 17. We need to turn this verse over and over again in our minds to see the beauty of it. We need to understand why Asaph's entry into what he calls the sanctuary here proves so enlightening. He doesn't explicitly tell us in this psalm, but the answers, they're all over scripture. As Elizabeth Elliot wrote, faith does not eliminate questions, but it knows where to take them. And Asaph has taken it to the right place. Why does entering the sanctuary prove decisive in Asaph's struggle with the prosperity of the wicked? I'll give you three possibilities. I'll admit these are somewhat inferences, but I think they are true inferences. First, I'll do two of these quickly, and then we're going to spend a lot of time on the third one. First, as we've already seen in a glimpse of verse 15, God's people are there. God's people are in the sanctuary. Perhaps just the mere sight of other believers as Asaph comes into the sanctuary with his doubt. He sees them joyful in the Lord, and he is compelled to discard his own doubts. 
Second, God is no longer an object of Asaph's speculation, but he's an object of his worship. The shift there is not to be understated. God designed us as humans to worship. If we are not worshiping God, we are worshiping something else, be it ourselves, an ideal or an idol. That's really what Asaph was doing in the first half of this psalm. And so as he moves out of his own head and starts ascribing worth to God, his eyes are opened to truth. But third, and combining aspects of those first two, God's special revelatory presence is there. The sanctuary our author enters is the Jerusalem temple. At this time in history, it was here and here only that God's special presence on earth hovered over the mercy seat inside the Holy of Holies. So as Asaph enters this sanctuary, he is literally moving nearer to the only place on earth where God allowed himself to dwell on earth in a special way. He approaches God where God has instructed his people to meet him. It's amazing when we obey God in that kind of command, New City, isn't it? What good things happen when we actually do what God tells us to do? Let's not neglect the ordinary means of grace. No matter how foggy your mom brain is or how tired you are at the end of a day at the office, approach God in the ways he has prescribed. Do not try and invent your own ways to approach him. He has not hidden these things from us. And if doubt is clouding your mind, this psalm teaches us that there is one means of grace in particular that will be helpful to you. There is no greater means of grace than going into the sanctuary of God. You may ask, where is that sanctuary? I would say to you, you are sitting in it. No, not this physical room. Nothing about these rafters and this building at 918 Bathurst, but this assembly of people. Let me take some time to explain this. The Bible is, it spends a lot of time on this, so let's spend some time on it. You see God's special revelatory presence. It didn't leave the earth with the destruction of the Jerusalem temple. It returned in the new temple. And then a few hundred years later, it came in the person of Jesus Christ, who, as the apostle John is very explicit in teaching us, he says, God literally tabernacled amongst us as Jesus was here on the earth. So does this special presence then leave with Jesus when Jesus ascends into heaven? No. Again, the New Testament is clear here. Jesus sends the Spirit to form a new temple, the church. Let me say that again. Jesus sends his spirit to form a new temple, the church. I'm not denying that the spirit indwells all of God's people individually, but there is a corporate structure to the new covenant. There are so many texts that we could turn to to prove the church is God's sanctuary in these last days. Chief amongst them is that passage that Danielle read for us this morning in Ephesians 2 and 3. Look at Ephesians 2.19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, too, are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Now, this Ephesians text, and if you are really sharp uh, with listening there, you may have a, a brief pushback to me on that text in particular. It presents a small problem. It is forward-looking. 
it seems to indicate that God's church temple is still under construction in these last days. And it will only shown to be completed on the last day when Christ comes fully to dwell with us unmediated. And so your question might be, can God dwell in this unfinished project like we have here this morning? The Bible's resounding answer to that is yes. 1 Corinthians three sixteen and 17, here Paul is speaking to a local church. Don't you know that you yourselves, and here's a better translation perhaps, you Corinthians, all of you are God's temple, that God's spirit dwells in your midst. Present tense. The spirit dwells not just in the individual Corinthians, but actually in a special way when the Corinthian church assembles. 2 Corinthians 6.14, again, Paul writing here to a local church. What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk with them, among them, and I will be their God and they will be my people. To summarize this way, the New Testament has a two-tiered temple metaphor for the church in these last days. The first, it pictures a construction project that will not be complete until the last day when all the believers for all time, those who are already uh, dead and in glory with Christ and those who are yet to come will be united together in resurrection life on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. This is the universal church, an invisible reality that will become visible. And the second picture is of an active sanctuary, a space where God dwells right now with each of his people in these last days. This is the local church assembled. Here the Holy Spirit dwells specially, despite our imperfections. And so yes, brother, sister, skeptic, today you have entered God's sanctuary, not unlike the psalmist. Just as the Jerusalem temple provided a snapshot of heaven's throne room, this local church, small and modest as it may be, it provides a snapshot of the future heavenly assembly of all of God's people. As Charles Bridges writes, the church is the mirror that reflects the whole effulgence of the divine character. It is the grand scene in which the perfections of Jehovah are displayed to the universe. Walking into a local church, I know it doesn't feel like it sometimes. When the, you know, we're just 40 or 50 of us here. We're in a rented building in downtown Toronto. No one's looking at us in any way. But this is true. This is what God's word says. When you walk into a local church made up of genuine believers who teach the true gospel, it is the closest we get to heaven on earth. Heaven and earth collided inside the Holy of Holies. They collide today in the assembly of faithful churches. They will merge perfectly on the last day, heaven and earth, when every last believer, every last living stone from all time forms the new temple and God will be there unfiltered. So it's no wonder that Asaph's perspective is dramatically altered because he stepped into the place where God dwells. Let's look at verse 16 again. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply Till I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. One commentator writes, as Asaph enters the place where heaven and earth meet, it's as if a whole new vista is opened up to him. A vista where these things that are troubling him are nothing more than a dream. He's like Elisha's assistant in 2 Kings 6, who's given new eyes to see heaven's chariots surrounding the army of the enemy. 
verse 18, he says this, Surely you place the wicked on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. So as the psalmist draws near to God, he realizes what little the wicked have, if all they have is this life. The parallelism with verse 2 is clear here. Uh, No longer is it Asaph that's on slippery ground, but it is the wicked. All that they have lived for is to be snuffed out in a moment. Their lives of pleasure are like that dream we try to remember after we wake up, but then it just slips away into our subconscious. Eighty years, perhaps, of carefree pursuit of our heart's desires, they are forgotten. And eternity in hell overwhelms the memory of it. Note one other aspect of verse 18. It's a fearsome aspect. It says, God will cast the wicked down to ruin. God will cast them. The wicked, those who are pure in heart, who have long since laughed away the existence of God, this God that they mocked actively rejects them. God justly condemns his rebellious creatures. Verse 27 will summarize this section quite well. Those who are far from God will perish. God will destroy all who are unfaithful to him. So friend, fellow sinner, consider this God's description of the end of all of those who disbelieve his word. If you feel far from God today, in reality, you're quite close. But if you continue on the path that you are on, you will one day feel quite far indeed. I say you're quite close because, again, you've entered into the sanctuary this morning. You are literally right now hearing God's word spoken to you. God in his mercy has extended to you your next breath and the breath after that to continue to hear his word. So draw near to him in humble repentance. Let me tell you what he has done for me and every Christian here this morning. You see, this God that Asaph speaks of here in Psalm 73, he is the one God. He's the God that reveals himself in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. He tells us he exists eternally as three persons, one being, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He tells us first that he made the world perfect. He made us, human beings, in his image. We were meant to give him glory and to rule in his place on his creation, and yet we rebelled. We thought ourselves to be gods of our own our first parents adam and eve they sinned and sin came into the world and has reigned in us ever since every man that has lived since then has been marked by sin we have been apart from god we could not be near god as we once were in the garden of eden thanks be to god our god at that moment he begins a plan to restore his image bearers doesn't he in genesis 3 he says i will once Send someone to crush the head of the serpent that tempted you to sin. And that, of course, we see in the New Testament is Jesus Christ, God's son, the God-man, God-made flesh amongst us. And this man goes to the cross and dies. Death, of course, being the penalty of all who sin, all of us. And yet, Jesus did not sin. And so that penalty could not hold him. He defeated death, and his death remains held out to all who will claim it. Put your faith in what Jesus Christ has accomplished for your sin, his perfect life, 
and undeserved death can stand in the place of your ruined life and your deserved death if you only believe in what he has done for you and turn from your sin in repentance to him. If you do that, you will not be swept away on the last day. No, there's an an infinitely greater eternity awaiting those who are in Christ. And Asaph, he sees shadows of it in our remaining verses this morning. Friends, all the promises of verses 23 to 26 can be yours if you only believe. So Asaph's hope, it is upheld. And now point three, the hope gloriously expanded. Asaph, now this side of his epiphany in the sanctuary, sees more clearly the prize that is awaiting those who draw near to God. But he begins with a long-awaited confession. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. In verse 2, Asaph had begun to recognize the peril he was in by doubting God's goodness. In verse 15, he admitted that Perhaps it was a betrayal of his fellow covenant children. And now here, he finally confesses his sin directly to God, his sin of bitterness and envy. And I think we can take a lesson uh, from Asaph's frankness in his confession. Brothers and sisters, when we confess our sin to one another, when we confess our sin to God, we shouldn't mince words. We must not soften what we have done. Look what Asaph says here. I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. My heart was grieved. My spirit embittered. Confess truthfully. Let's not trick ourselves into believing our sin wasn't that bad. And so now Asaph, his sin laid out before God, his gaze trained into heaven. He makes a series of observations about God's relationship with his people. Look back again at verse 1 for a second before we get into this. Verse 1 said, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Why? Verses 23 to 26. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Notice first here, four contrasts with Asaph's description of the wicked. The wicked, in verse 11, they question God's wisdom. But the pure in heart, they receive his counsel, verse 24. The wicked, they lay false claim to heaven, in verse 9. The pure in heart, they actually have someone in heaven, verse 25. While the wicked take possession of the earth, verse 9, Asaph recognizes the earth has nothing that he desires, verse 25. And while the wicked, they rely on fleeting strength of their own bodies. In verse 4, the righteous have an infinite source of strength for both their flesh and their hearts. In verse 26. So besides those contrasts, Asaph, he sets up really a number of positions, differences between the position of the wicked and the position of the pure in heart. He expands upon this in his hope in three ways. Three ways in which his original hope of verse 1 is expanded. God is good to the pure in heart in that he guides us, he glorifies us, and he gives us himself. First, he guides us. Verse 23. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. Asaph's verse 2 fear of losing his foothold is ruled out when he draws near to God. That's what he discovers. His hand is now held 
by the one who formed the world. And Asaph, he has found a wise counselor, finally, to help him understand that struggle of verse 16. Brothers and sisters, this is not just a hopeful statement that's out there. God hasn't spoken to me, you might say. Well, God is speaking to you right now. God actively guides us. That's what this is for. The Bible. His word reveals to us the way of salvation. Not just how to be saved, but how to continue on the narrow path to our dying day. God is not silent. He speaks today through his word, sometimes in this way, through the pulpit, but many times through the every member ministry of the word. That brother or sister who pulls you aside and tells you truth from scripture, that is God's counsel to you. Sometimes as you seek him in prayer, this guidance is a distinct privilege of the pure in heart who draw near to God. Second, he glorifies us. Verse 24, you guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire beside you. It's worth noting here in that phrase being taken up into glory that the Hebrew verb translated take in verse 25, it's the exact same one that's used to describe God's action in taking the godly man Enoch into heaven in Genesis 5. So this is clearly speaking about heaven. This couplet contains what is essentially the Old Testament version of the chain of salvation. It's hidden a little bit, but I think you can hear its echoes. Asaph draws near to God. He understands and accepts the truth. Justification. Asaph is guided along by God's counsel. Sanctification. Asaph is taken into glory. Glorification. And it's this third aspect that causes Asaph to cry out, whom have I in heaven but you? And to me, that sounds a lot like Paul in Romans 8, 30, 31. Paul writes, those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? It's a sure thing that God will complete his redeeming work in every one of his children. A hymn writer put it this way, Yea, justified, O blessed thought, and sanctified salvation wrought, thy blood hath pardoned, bought for me, and glorified I too shall be. He guides us, he glorifies us, and finally, he gives us himself. In verse 26, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. It's helpful to recognize here that Asaph is a Levite. Recall Numbers 18.20. You, that's the Levites in the line of Aaron, will have no inheritance in the land, nor will you have any share among them. I am your share, God speaking, and your inheritance amongst the Israelites. The Levites ate food that was donated to the temple. They were employed in and around the sanctuary. God literally was their portion day by day, and what they passed on to their children, this work with the Lord. Asaph sees this unique Levitical promise now extended into an eternity in glory. And it's a hope that all Christians now share along with him. The Bible tells us we are co-heirs with Christ of the new heavens and the new earth. The place where God's presence will be unfiltered, unmediated, and where his glory will cover every square inch. In other words, our inheritance in Christ is God himself. 
when Asaph says that God is his portion, he is saying, I have the best inheritance imaginable. No possession or comfort is worth pursuing outside of God. This should remind us, I think, of last week's sermon, right? In Luke 12, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. God offers himself as our treasure. Let us not be like the rich young ruler of Matthew 19 who went away from Jesus sad because he loved his wealth more. We would be fools, really, to turn down this offer. This is an inheritance offer to us. The banker has called. The lights are dimmed. He has an offer. Eternity with free from sin with your creator. Or you can pick from 25 suitcases with a penny in each of them. That is literally the offer before you. And sadly, that is the offer most people take, the pennies. God gives us himself, yes, in the sending of his son, but ultimately in the offer of forever fellowship with him. Surely God is good to those who are pure in heart. So what has Asaph learned? What have we learned? Verse 28, a conclusion, a hope that's no longer wavering, but grounded. He says, but as for me, It is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. There's a lot here in that verse. Countless sermons have been preached on just the first half of it, that near God part. Uh, Notice again its symmetry, though, with the opening. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. But as for me, it is good to be near God. Asaph no longer is at fear of slipping He no longer envies the wicked because he has discerned their end. In verse 27, those who are far from God will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. Asaph's experience in the sanctuary has caused him to discover life's chief good. It is this, to be near God. His perspective on the apparent carefree life of the wicked, it's been realigned. And so he does two things. He declares the sovereign Lord to be his refuge. This is a repeated theme throughout the Psalms, the word refuge. It is to say, essentially, he swears to no longer rely upon his own strength or to bemoan that others are stronger than him. Rather, his strength rises from resting on the Lord, the Almighty. And secondly, he vows to tell of all the Lord has done for him. What began as an internal struggle concludes with external proclamation. This is also the proper pattern of the Christian life, isn't it? Evangelism flows from the pure in heart who draw near to God. We have nothing else of comparable value to speak about except for the wonderful works of God in salvation. Our flesh fails, our heart fails, but God is our guide. He is our strength. He is our portion. He is the one who will take us into glory. Our salvation makes a boast about God. It speaks nothing of us. So brothers and sisters, let us tell of all the deeds of our great God. Let us proclaim the gospel and let us come near to God, James 3, and he will come near to us. Amen.